Good morning. Mark leaned over and asked me, how do you deal with this circus every week like this? I said, it's only this way when there's four gaddies in the front. Uh, it's usually not a circus, otherwise. Um, oh, there's the music. Uh, this morning, it's, we're running a little bit late, and the sermon's going to go a little bit long, but it's about fasting, so you don't need to get to lunch. So it doesn't even, it doesn't even matter. We'll just go an extra hour. So, um, Advent, like we're celebrating, and we've said over the past few weeks, Advent is all about waiting. It's all about waiting. And the topic of fasting fits right in this, right? Waiting without food, waiting maybe for the next meal, looking forward to something. But Advent, as these gals read earlier for us, is the topic and the, the theme for this morning. Advent is also about joy. And hopefully by the end of the sermon, we don't usually put fasting and joy together. Hopefully by the end of the sermon, you'll see how these two connect. Now on a personal level, um, the first time I fasted wasn't for a medical procedure. It was when I was a junior in high school, our youth group did something called a 30-hour famine. Has anybody ever participated in one of those? A few of you. Uh, They're uh, a program put on by World Vision. And the idea of these is to have, you know, young people experience what it's like to be hungry, what it's like to go without food, because there's a lot of people in the world uh, who do regularly go without food. So for 30 hours, we didn't eat, and then the idea was that we could kind of experience that and, and, and grow in a heart for, for those who have less, and then at the end, we gorged ourselves on a big meal. Um, but it, it was an, interesting, it was an interesting, uh, interesting time. The next time I fasted was, uh, was when I was a senior in high school, the very next year. And the reason for that was I fasted for a couple days because I was trying to figure out where I was going to go to college. And I'd applied to six different schools, and I really wanted to know where God wanted me, like exactly where he wanted me, and I wasn't sure because there were some good candidates, and so... I thought, okay, if I fast, he'll tell me, right? If I stop eating, uh, he'll answer my prayers and, and tell me where I want to go. And that was an interesting one because I ended up cutting it off early because I was hungry. <laughs> and uh, I was going to go for a few days, and then I was like, man, I'm just, I got to eat. And ended up eating, and then immediately I felt guilty about it. And so for me, there, um, there's always been in regards to fasting, there's always been these kind of two dual temptations. And the first one is that I think fasting can easily become a work. It can be, be, become something that we do for God. And then when it, when it does that, it, it becomes about what I do and don't do. Am I fasting long enough? Did I accidentally eat a crumb or something? You know, or, oh, shoot, I was at somebody's house and I ate a grape. Is God not going to listen to me anymore? Um, or, you know, we ask questions, you know, if, uh, will my prayers not be effective if I do such and such? And then we, then we start going through, like, okay, what can I eat and what can't I eat? What can I drink and what can't I drink? Can I drink apple juice but not a smoothie? If I drink orange juice, can it have pulp or does it have to be pulp-free? You know, those, those kind of questions that we ask, we, we get in on the, on the details and we can get distracted and make it a work for God. I think the second temptation with, with fasting is really the one that Jesus addresses here in Matthew chapter 6. 
And in this critique, this is his third critique of this group that he calls the hypocrites. The first critique was about giving and giving in public so that everybody can see and know and praise them. The second one was about prayer, praying, praying on the street corners with many words and as loud as you could so that people could see and respect you for your prayer. And the third, and, and the third thing he addresses here is fasting. Those who would uh, purposefully look, make themselves look like they were suffering so that others would know that they're fasting and just know how righteous and how amazing, amazingly spiritual people they are. And Jesus simply says something, something, something along the lines of this. When you fast, don't make a spectacle of it. Just like the other spiritual practices of giving and praying, these are about your relationship with your Father. Fasting isn't about your reputation with everyone else in the room. It's about you and your Father. So this morning... The big question I want to ask and try to answer is, what is fasting? And then secondly, what would fasting look like in our lives as followers of Jesus? And then I'm going to connect it to joy. I promise by the time we get to this, you can find joy even in fasting. Fasting is an unusual practice for, for the church these days. It's not, it's not something we're quick to practice, um, mainly because if you're like me, you like to eat. And you like three square meals a day, and some of you don't eat breakfast, which doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever, because breakfast is my favorite meal of the day. You know, maybe some of you do two meals a day, but I like to eat, and we are people who are used to being fed, and our bodies need food, and that's right, and good. And also, I think the other reason we don't talk about fasting very much is because right here, Jesus tells us not to, Right? In some sense, he says, hey, if you do fast, don't tell anybody about it. So if we're actually obeying Jesus in this and say like 30 to 50% of the people in this church regularly fast, we probably wouldn't all know about it, right? So we wouldn't talk about it very much. So that's one reason we don't talk about fasting as well. But what I'd like to do is, is kind of look at, through a biblical lens to see what fasting is and to see what it might mean for us and how it might bring us joy in the waiting, especially as we wait during this Advent season. So we're going to do a little bit of a biblical survey today and look at the biblical practice of fasting. Because in the, in the Bible, fasting refers basically to going without food, sometimes going without water or any kind of drink as well for a period of time. Now, I know a lot of times we'll talk about fasting from social media or fasting um, from, I would fast from exercise if you know, that was a good one. Some, you know, there's different things we want to pick that we fast from, and, and that's fine. But biblically, um, the main thing that's, that's referenced with regards to fasting is food and sometimes drink. And in the Bible, fasting is often done individually. Most of the accounts of fasting that we see are individual people fasting, but also, uh, or excuse me, that's backwards. It's often done individually, but the majority of the times we see it in the scripture are corporate fasts. So numerous instances throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, when people would come together and not eat or drink for a time and for, for different purposes. Now, in the Old Testament, in the law, remember Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books, the Torah, is the law that was given by Moses from God through Moses to the people of Israel. And there's only one 
law, there's only one requirement in regards to fasting in that whole thing. So, so, you, so you'd imagine, kind of knowing how like the Jews of Jesus' day acted, that fasting was commanded in the law from beginning to end, but there's really only one reference to it, and it's found in Leviticus chapter 16. Does anybody know what Leviticus chapter 16 is about? Does anybody even make it to Leviticus 16 in your Bible reading? Okay, Leviticus 16 is the most important chapter in Leviticus. It's about the Day of Atonement, which was the high holy day in all of Israel. Okay, it's something like we would, we would regard maybe Christmas as our high holy holiday for the year. It should be Easter, but we regard Christmas this way culturally. And for the ancient Jews, the Day of Atonement was the same thing. Well, here's what Moses wrote about the Day of Atonement. Said in verse 29 of Leviticus 16, and it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Now, most of us look at that and go, hey, I'll sign up for no work. Right? Don't do any work for a day, sure. But we don't usually sign up to afflict ourselves. When it says afflict ourselves, that's really a euphemism for fasting. It's really what's being talked about there. So you shall fast and you shall do no work anyone. And that's the only fast that is commanded. In fact, in the New Testament, in Acts, when it talks about keeping the fast, that's what they're talking about is the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement was to be a kind of a day of national mourning, of confession, confessing the sins of the people and their individual sins. It was to be a day of humility and a day where God would atone for the sins of all of Israel. And, and in a sense, fasting is, is, was for them this afflicting of themselves, a giving up of something that was pleasurable and that was good. And it was part of this day because it represents humility and grief over sin. Now, Hundreds of years later, when the Israelites were exiled in Babylon, they added many fasts to their corporate worship. And so in Zechariah 8, you can actually read God addressing them. And so you keep the fast in the third month, and you keep the fast in the fifth month, and you keep the fast in the, in the seventh month. And so they, they kind of added these to their worship, but originally those weren't part of it. Now, at different times throughout the history of Israel... Fasts were declared, and oftentimes they were declared by leaders, like kings or prophets or priests. And they were declared for different reasons. So some were observed during times of national mourning or or national lamentation uh, for sin. Sometimes, like in 1 Samuel chapter 7 up here, you see this was under the judge Samuel. And it says, they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. And said there, we have sinned against the Lord. So, so fasting was a way for the people to come before God and just say, we have sinned. We're confessing to you. We're humbling ourselves in our sin before you and crying out for your mercy and for your forgiveness. At other times, Israel would mourn for kind of severe, brutal losses, such as in the book of Judges, when there was a civil war between basically 11 tribes of Israel versus Benjamin. You remember the story? And and there was a huge civil war between them, and they went into battle, and Benjamin just kicked the tail out out of the other tribes. And they returned, and they sat down before God, and it says they mourned and they fasted because of this this, uh, horrible loss that had happened in battle. You may remember 
at the end of at the end of First Samuel, when Jonathan and his excuse me Saul and his son Jonathan died in battle, it says in in Second Samuel one that David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. So they would fast corporately because they were mourning for sin. They would fast corporately because they were mourning a great loss. But at other times, the leaders of Israel would call the people to fast and pray in order to seek the Lord's blessing or or his favor. So King Jehoshaphat, he declared a fast one time when a bunch of armies came against Jerusalem. There was this huge multitude, and he wasn't sure what to do. So the first thing he was led to do in Second Chronicles chapter 20 was to pray and call the people to fast. And so they did. Later on, Ezra, in the book of Ezra, declared a fast when he and several hundred other Judeans were making their way back from exile in Babylon to the promised land. Here's what it says. I'm quoting this one in length because at length because it's very interesting. He says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava. All these people were gathered together. They were getting ready to go on this huge, dangerous journey. It says, I proclaimed a fast there that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king... The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So God listened, God got him there safely, but it was really seeking God's favor, seeking his protection, seeking his presence with them as they traveled. You probably remember the story of Esther and the the entire Jewish nation was about to be killed by their enemies, and Esther called for a national fast or called for the Jews to fast for her as she went into the king to plead with him. And then in the New Testament, we see several instances where churches will come together and corporately fast and pray as they awaited for the Spirit's guidance specifically in regards to the mission of, of carrying the gospel to where God wanted them to go. So Acts chapter 13 is one instance of that. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they were, they were seeking to hear from the Holy Spirit. They were asking the Holy Spirit's guidance, and it was specifically in regards to their mission. So those are... Those are examples of corporate fasting throughout the scripture, but there's also individual fasting of, of righteous individuals, basically um, who were seeking God and, or who were repenting themselves. So you might recall the story of David. Remember David and Bathsheba, right? The wife of Uriah. Well, David got Bathsheba pregnant, and part of the judgment on that was that, that God, um, basically that child wasn't going to survive. And so the child was ill and about to die, and David goes into this time of prayer and fasting on behalf of, this, of his young son. It says, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And so this intercession and this mourning, in some sense, he was mourning for his own sin, but in the same sense, he was interceding 
for this child. David would also fast on behalf of other people. And this was kind of an intercessory fasting. And it wasn't just reserved for David's child. It was also reserved for his enemies. In Psalm 35, he writes about his enemies, these ones who who want him dead. And here's what he says. Here's what I did for you. You guys hate me? Look what I did for you in verse 13 of Psalm 35. When When they were sick, when my enemies were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. So, so there was this practice that David had, obviously, of, of fasting, of afflicting himself so that he could pray for those who were ill. The priest Ezra, as we read about already in Ezra 8... He not only called a community fast, but he himself fasted and mourned over the disobedience of God's people. Ezra chapter 10, verse 6, he says, it says, Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles." Nehemiah does a similar thing. You remember, he's um, serving the king in exile, and he's the the wine bearer, the cup bearer for the king. And he meets a messenger who's come from Jerusalem, the city of the Jews, and he asks for a report. And the the man tells him, Jerusalem, the the wall has fallen down, the whole city's burnt, and the exiles there, they're not doing very well. And Nehemiah tells us this. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then there's three well-known fasts in the scriptures of individuals that lasted for 40 days. Anybody ever done a 40-day fast? I know people who have, and I think they're nuts. No. Um, It's a difficult thing to do. It's possible, obviously, but Moses, when he, in Exodus, went up to the mountain, Mount Sinai, to get the law, he was up there for 40 days or 40 nights, Exodus 34 tells us, without food, without drink. Elijah was in the wilderness, 1 Kings chapter 19, for 40 days and 40 nights without food or drink. Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, Without drink. So there's definitely precedent for that. Okay, so that was a biblical survey, and it only took me about 10 minutes. So, but that's a lot. It's, it's in there. Now, it's not necessarily, sorry, I'm trying to adjust that a little bit. Is that better? Not really. Okay. Um, so we've looked at the, at the practice of fasting throughout the Bible, and we want to discern, and my heart for this time is that we would discern what God's heart for us is in the practice of fasting. Because Jesus addresses it here in Matthew chapter 6. He, in some sense, as I'll get to in a minute, he assumes that fasting will be a practice that his disciples engage in, and he wants them to do it with the right heart. And so what is God's heart? What would God, God's heart be for us as a people, as individuals in fasting? And then secondly, is it something that should be a regular part of our lives as followers of Jesus. As, as you consider this, would this be something that God would call me into in my relationship with him? First of all, I just want to note that nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus command us to fast. 
that I can find. You may point it out to me, but I was not able to find it. Jesus doesn't command anybody to fast. He doesn't institute a regular fast for his people, for his followers. Now, he assumes, I think, that his followers are going to fast. You can see that here in Matthew chapter 16. Just in the introduction to his comments, he says, and when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. There's an assumption there that they will fast because he says, and when you fast. Chapter 19 of Matthew, this is the only other time in Matthew that he will address fasting. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 9, not 19. He says, and I'll address this in just a minute, a little bit more in depth, but he says, when the days will come, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, basically when Jesus will leave, will go, he'll go back to the Father, when, the, when Jesus is taken away from his disciples, he says, and then they, his disciples, will fast. So there's, there's an assumption there that, that Jesus' followers will fast, but there's never a commandment. It's not like baptism or the Lord's Supper, which, are, which were instituted sacraments or, what do we call them? We don't call them sacraments. We're Baptists. Ordinances. ordinances thank you. The cleaner word, right? Um, he didn't give us any, institute any ordinances or sacraments about fasting for us. And so fasting is not a command or a requirement. It's not a, it's not a work that Jesus would want us to accomplish so that we can please God or get um, merit points with him or something like that. However, because of what fasting is, it makes sense to me that we would seek as followers of Jesus to incorporate this practice into our lives. And I want to give you five reasons why this should be. So five reasons to fast. First of all, fasting is a sign of sorrow. Fasting is a sign of sorrow. And biblically, it's okay to be sad for sad things. And fasting acts as a kind of a physical manifestation of a, of a spiritual posture of humility or, or of mourning or grief or lament. You could put it this way, that proud people don't fast, or at least proud people don't fast for the right reason. It's humble people who fast. It's people who are broken over their sin. It's people who fulfill the beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And throughout Scripture, people spontaneously respond to bad news, to sad circumstances, to a conviction of sin, to loss. And they respond through fasting. Now, if you've ever gone through a time of grief, you've had someone close to you die, you know what it's like to not even be hungry to not have an appetite. So sometimes fasting is just a spontaneous response to loss or to grief. And I would suggest that as Americans, we don't mourn often enough. That we don't know how to lament or grieve. And oftentimes we use food even to cover up those feelings of loss, those feelings of grief, those feelings of mournfulness. And sometimes I think as Americans, we live as if the bridegroom is here when he's not. Because we don't like to go without anything. We certainly don't like to take on any undue suffering. Like, why would I not eat when I can eat? But when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, what he's calling for us is, is first of all, to mourn our own sin to be broken for our own sin, to mourn the sin that's around us, to mourn the division that are in our relationships, whether in the church or, or in our community or in our nation or in the world, to mourn the brokenness of the world that's around us. 
And the practice of fasting actually habituates us to recognize that the world is not the way that it should be. So fasting can be a a sign of sorrow. Fasting is also a declaration of dependence. As Americans, we celebrate our declaration of independence. We, We celebrate our independence and our freedom. But as followers of Jesus, we should not forget the reality of our utter dependence on God. And you remember that as the, as the Jews were wandering for 40 years, the Israelites were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, God actually made them hunger. He made them fast. And he tells them this in Deuteronomy 8.3. He humbled you, and God let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's... That is utter dependence upon God. And when we fast, we we experience in real time our dependence upon food and drink for survival. If you go without food for two days, you will feel it. Your body will let you know. Okay, that's what your stomach is for, right? Or that's that's what stomach, um, that's what hunger pangs are for, is to let you know, feed me. Give me the fuel that I need, and, and we'll understand that we are dependent, not on our own power. We, we have to have food. We have to have water. And God uses this, I think, when we fast to encourage us to recognize also our spiritual dependence, that we cannot live without God, that we are made for him, and that our souls ought to desire him more than we desire food. And, and there's so many things like food that we desire more than we desire God. And when those things are taken away, sometimes it hurts. And that hurt, that pain, those hunger pangs should point us to the fact that I don't want God enough. I don't depend on him enough. And when we fast, it's a way for us to say, I'm going to go without something to clarify and deepen a hunger for God. And so when a hunger pang comes, when a craving for a certain food that someone else in the house is cooking comes and I want to eat, could that drive me to this prayer? God, may I hunger for you as much as I hunger for food. Thirdly, I think fasting brings us or brings a focus to prayer. And in scripture, as we saw, oftentimes fasting is accompanied by prayer. Not, not just prayers of confession and lament, but also also seeking God's favor, seeking his guidance, seeking his protection, seeking his direction. And so what happens when we fast is we set aside food or we set aside our meal times for a time to express a devotion to God, a seriousness about the request that we're making. God, this is so important to me that I would set aside food so that I can come to you and speak with you about this. Now, that's not to say that prayer without fasting is worthless. We can still eat and fast. We can even or eat and pray. We can, still eat, we can eat and pray at the same time. But on a personal level, we might decide for a time to set aside food or something else and to exchange that for prayer. I'm going to fast. Say, so you're going to fast for 48 hours. I'm going to take those five or six meal times. I'm going to spend that time that I otherwise spend eating praying. And on top of this, I think prolonged fasting, if you've ever done it for a while, actually provokes physical detoxification, which in turn 
brings a clarity of mind and a clarity of heart as we pray and as we seek God's face and as we seek to listen to the Holy Spirit. Fourth, I believe that fasting orients us to practice justice and mercy. Fasting actually moves us or should move us to love others. And if you look at the Old Testament and what God actually has to say about fasting, the most prolonged statements on it in the Old Testament actually take Israel to task for their hypocrisy, just like Jesus does in Matthew chapter 6. And he's saying to them, you're fasting, you're keeping all these fasts, and you're wondering why I'm not listening to you. Well, let me tell you why I'm not listening to you. And here's what he says in Isaiah chapter 58. He says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. And so, just like Jesus, God is addressing his people and saying, You're doing all these spiritual things that you think you're doing for me, but you're doing them for yourself. And while you're doing them, you're not loving your neighbor. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is, not, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? This is an intriguing chapter. And I don't think it's a chapter that says you must fast and while you do it, do these things. He's addressing us as his followers, as his people and saying, are you doing outward motions that show that you're worshiping me or show that you're devoted to me and yet in your heart and in your actions towards others, those do not reflect a heart of worship towards me because you're not reflecting love towards others. The intention, as I spoke about a few minutes ago, the intention of the 30-hour famine that we did when we were in high school was to identify ourselves or help us to understand in some small picture of what it was like to go hungry and to go without, to, to enter into and identify with the suffering of others. And I think that fasting allows us to do that. Not only do we identify with those who suffer, but God desires that we act, that we allow that identification to push us to a place where we go, I'm going to serve these people. I'm going to love these people. I'm going to share my bread. I'm going to loose bonds. I'm going to free the oppressed. I'm going to care for the needy. I'm going to cover the naked. And it seems like God is speaking here of not just going without for spiritual purposes when we fast, but actually going without so that others might have what I have forsaken. I give up a meal, I give it to someone else. Fasting is willingly taking on suffering for the sake of others, just like Jesus did for us. And then finally, and this is my last point, I think one of the purposes of fasting and why it is good for us as followers of Jesus to make it a spiritual practice is that fasting is a harbinger of joy. And what I mean by that is that fasting points us to a future joy. In Matthew 9, we turn over just a few chapters from Matthew 6, and in Matthew 9, some of John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus, and in verse 
14, they ask him, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? To which Jesus answers in in verse 15, chapter 9 of Matthew, Jesus answers this. He says, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So in other words, I think what Jesus is saying here is that his physical presence, that the physical presence of Christ with his disciples was such a comfort. It was such a joy to have God incarnate dwelling with them, walking with them, teaching them them, that his presence was like being at a wedding 24-7. Most of you men think that sounds like torture. But the idea of a wedding is joyful. It's celebration. You don't go to a wedding and fast. You go to a wedding to feast, to rejoice, to celebrate. And that's what Jesus' presence was like. But then he speaks of a future time that will come where he will be gone. He will not be physically with them. But he will be coming again. And that's the waiting that we do during this Advent, during every Advent. Yes, we look forward to Christmas when we remember the Christ child, when God coming in the flesh. But that should point us, it should always point us to that second coming when Jesus has said, I am coming back, I'm bringing my rewards with me, and I'm going to set everything right. He's not with us now, but we will be with him one day forever. In a Jewish wedding, in Jesus' day, the wedding wouldn't even start until the bridegroom and his party showed up, and then the festivities began. We've turned that around in our culture, which is fine, and we wait for the the bride to walk in the room, and that's when everything can start. But in this context, that's what he's he's talking about. We're all waiting. We can't eat yet. We have to wait to eat until we can celebrate when the the bridegroom comes. And because he hasn't come, we should desperately long for him to come. But we, we don't wait without hope. We wait in the promise of joy that Christ will bring us. So the question for us is, do you long for the bridegroom to come? Do you long for Jesus to come back? Do you desperately desire his return? Do you look forward in a hope that is marked by joy that is is ours and will be ours most fully in Christ at his coming? And so the fasting that Jesus talks about here is a, a mourning of sorts, but a willingly going without because we know that there is a better feast to come. And it's a feast that we will enjoy with Christ forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your son, Jesus. We're grateful that he came and that when he was here, it was like a bachelor party of sorts. It was like having the bridegroom and, and rejoicing. We can't even imagine what that was like to walk with him, but we also know that there's the promise for us that we will one day, as followers of Jesus, 
We will one day stand with him and we will one day be seated by our host at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Father, I know for some of us that doesn't ring true, for some of us that doesn't elicit any kind of emotion or desire, for some of us it elicits fear, for some of us doubt. And, and I would pray that you would work in us a deep longing for the return of Jesus, for the kingdom consummated, and finally for the joy that will never abate, that will never go away because we will be with him forever. Lord, if you would guide us into fasting, whether corporately or individually, Lord, we pray that 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 would be a personal thing, that we would seek your face on that, and, and perhaps it would be a way that we would more deeply enter into prayer relationship with you. Perhaps it would be a way that we would remind ourselves of your coming. Perhaps it would be a way that we would learn to love others more. And so just as you identified with us and entered into our suffering, Lord, may we willingly enter into suffering for the sake of others and for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray all this in your name, for your glory.